Well, about 50 years ago or so, Christians began to teach and emphasize that Christians must have a personal relationship with Jesus. Not that this was a new teaching, but rather a newfound teaching. One that had been lost through the centuries of Christendom. But what does it mean, and why did they find it necessary to emphasize a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, at the time, they were countering the very rigid formalism that had really become part and parcel to the Christian life. Christians were merely going through the religious motions. Uh, They attended church, they were baptized, took communion, served on church boards, all without any visible transformation in their lives. Uh, Christian leaders began to notice congregations filled with with zombies rather than living, life-inspired, breathing spiritual people. And so a new generation of pastors and teachers and leaders began to to teach and to minister to their congregation, emphasizing a vibrant, warm relationship with Jesus that would counter the coldness that was experienced among many in Christianity. But with any renewed teaching, with any reactive teaching, when the pendulum swings, the pendulum swings all the way to the other side. And so with this newfound teaching, with this new emphasis on the personal relationship with Jesus, became many dangers and pitfalls. As time would tell, when you focus so heavily on the personal, you forget the authoritative. When Jesus is your buddy, you forget that Jesus is also your Lord. And so what would often come with it was conversations like this, that you must not only make Jesus your Savior, but your Lord. And so as the pendulum would swing the other way, the emphasis was placed on the Lordship of Jesus Christ once again. What was found in this movement among the uh, experiential movement or the personal Jesus movement, if you will, I'm making up these terms, um, was, the, was a good intention. They were well-intentioned. They, they wanted to see people who lived vibrant lives. They wanted to see congregations filled with regenerate members. But ultimately, what resulted when one focuses merely on the personal and the experiential is that you create a unregenerate membership that is focused more on the experience rather than the transforming power of the Spirit. What was left among these congregations was mere emotionalism and not transformational. What we need as a congregation and as Christians, individually and corporately, is a balance between the personal and the authoritative, between the truth that Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior. We need to balance the personal nature of our communion with Christ with his commands to obey him. The last thing we want among us is a sense of antinomianism and anti-law, that we are against law and instruction and commands. No, in order to have a relationship with Jesus, we will see this morning that one cannot be a friend of Jesus if they do not obey his word. In other words, it is illogical, it is irrational to say 
that you are following Jesus, yet at the same time, disobeying his clear commands. Jesus will instruct his disciples in this upper room discourse and then in the Garden of Gethsemane that following him means obeying him. That sticking close to Jesus means sticking close to his word. Jesus has announced in chapter 13 that his departure from this world is imminent. He's getting ready to leave. And Jesus here in these final chapters of John's gospel prepares his disciples and us for the time between his ascension and his second coming. He has one final mission. He has come to reveal the Father's glory and to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus here, taking on this final task of dying for the sins, would, would leave his disciples. Now, just imagine for a moment, you've been traveling with Jesus for three years. Your great leader, the one whom you've left everything behind for, has just revealed to you that, that one of the, the guys who you've been hanging out with for the last three years the guys that you've been sharing a meal with, the guys that you've been sleeping in the same room with, that you've been talking with, doing ministry with, just experiencing so much greatness with, you find out that he's a traitor. That he's betrayed the Lord or will betray the Lord. And then on top of that, you're told that your leader is about to leave and that you're going to be left alone in this world. What are they to do? What will life be like? And of course, as we've seen, Jesus is comforting them. He's helping them think about life after the cross. And as he makes his way from that upper room where he instituted the Lord's Supper, revealed his betrayer, the disciples and Jesus have now begun to make their way to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested and ultimately lead to the cross. And along this journey to the garden, Jesus continues to teach his disciples and ultimately result in chapter 17 where Jesus will pray to the Father for his disciples. He told them that life would be better when he's not around because their relationship would deepen. Because you see, Jesus and his disciples had only enjoyed a physical relationship, a relationship that was limited by the physical nature of humanity. But when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father, the Spirit would come and they would enjoy an intimate union that would never be separated. The indwelling of the Spirit. So such that Jesus will say in chapter 16, what we'll consider next week, that you want me to leave because then the Holy Spirit will come and then you will really know me. Know me like I know my Father. Friends, how do we balance both the personal and the authoritative? How are we to stay connect, connected with Jesus while Jesus isn't physically with us today? Jesus isn't here physically. So how do we stay connected with Jesus? Well, thankfully, John chapter 15 helps us understand how we live a spiritual life connected to Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 15 if you've not already. And I'm going to begin reading in chapter 15, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, Hates my father also. If I had done, not done among them the works that no one else did, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and, and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Well, friends, as we consider this chapter this morning... We could summarize it in one simple idea that Christians are to abide in Christ 
by remaining under his sphere of dominion and influence, which will evidence itself by our fruitfulness and love towards one another, even in the midst of persecution. We want to think this morning about what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What what results? How, How do we do it? What will it look like? We want to think about what is this spiritual fruit? What does it mean that we're going to bear fruit? What does this mean that the world hates us? This section really divides equally into two parts. You see, first, the love, the love of God in Christ for for us, contrasted with, in that latter half, the hatred of the world. You you see the, the parallelism between love, the love of God in Christ for us, and the hatred of the world towards those whom God loves. So how are we to remain under the sphere and dominion of Jesus? Our passages really demonstrates two ways to remain in Jesus. First, that we are to remain in Jesus by obeying his word. We stick close with Jesus when we obey his word, when we live a word-centered life. That's what we ended with in chapter 14, a word-centered life. Meaning that the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is the central focal point of the individual and corporate life of God's people. But not only knowing his word, but obeying his word. Secondly, we see in this second half, beginning in verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4, that we are to abide in Jesus by enduring persecution from the world. Jesus isn't just giving them a news report, but rather telling them the future that is to come. Jesus isn't just merely communicating truth. He is communicating truth that it might transform them into enduring power by the Spirit. So these are the two ideas we want to consider this morning, all under the umbrella of abiding in Jesus. How do we abide in Jesus? Well, first we see in verses 1 through 17 that we are to abide in Jesus by obeying his word. By obeying his word. Jesus began this by uh, using a metaphor, a parable, an uh, illustration. Something that they would have known. Now, remember, where are they? Well, they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where there would have been rows of vineyards. Jesus here is pointing out what they would have relatively known, what you and I know. Basic agriculture. You don't need to have an agricultural degree to know that if you break a branch from a tree, that branch dies. You don't need to have a Ph.D. You don't need to have a master's degree. You don't even need to have a a basic understanding. If you go out to that tree and you rip off a branch and you lay it on the ground and you come back, that branch will be dead. And Jesus here is saying to his disciples, listen, if you if you're disconnected from me, you die. It is only by being connected to me, you're dead. And he begins here in verse one by Introducing the characters in his illustration, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, of course, Jesus isn't just using an illustration readily at hand. Jesus here is borrowing from Old Testament language. You see, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was referred to as a vine, but not a fruitful vine, a fruitless vine. The nation of Israel failed again and again because they failed to obey God's word. The the number one problem the nation of Israel had was a word problem. The words of men were more important than the words of God. The words of men became more authoritative than the word of God. 
This was true in Jesus' own day in the context of the religious leaders who submitted to the, the Mishnah and the teachings of the rabbis rather than the teaching of God's word. What was more important were the traditions of men than the traditions of God. And Jesus here, by declaring himself to be the true vine, is that there is no other vine but him. He is the one true and only vine. That he is all that Israel failed to be. He is the new Israel. He is the one true and living God who can finally and fully obey everything that God commands. Well, friends, this is what we've seen, is it not? Throughout the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus would again and again say, I am here to do what? My Father's will. In other words, Jesus obeys the Father. Well, he says that as much in the same chapter, right? He says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. You see, Jesus here is declaring that he is the only way to the Father, just as he did last week. That he is the true vine. That he is the great I am. He is the one true and living God. A point that, again, I want to bring up into your minds, and we won't spend a lot, we spent a lot on this last week, is the truth of the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the true vine, that means there is no other vine. There's no other way. There's, there's no other means to spiritual life apart from Jesus Christ. There's no end around. There, there's no back door. There's no second chances. There's no do-overs. Believing in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, is the only way to spiritual life. This whole world has been taken in this week. I've seen it. Where, where have you seen it, friends? You've seen it at the lottery sales, haven't you? $750 million. Oh, how, how much life there is in that, isn't there? It's quite a sad picture. The dream that more money will result in life. Friend, this is, this is an example of another gospel. That's just a simple example. And you can see how readily available other gospels are, other means to spiritual happiness and joy. Jesus will say here at the end of chapter, or at the middle of this section, that true joy is experienced not by hitting the jackpot, but by abiding in me, by obeying my commands. Jesus here in his illustration speaks about two branches. Two branches. There are the fruitful branches, the productive branches, and the unproductive. Let's look at them this morning. We'll kind of just uh, first look at the productive branches and then consider the unproductive. Jesus says there in verse 2 that the productive branches are pruned so that they flourish. He begins by saying that every branch that that in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We'll think about that in a moment. And notice what he says in the second half. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. The father prunes that purpose or result. It may bear more fruit. Dead branches take life away from the plant. It's dead Dead works that sap the energy of the plant. And one of the works, as we'll see throughout the Gospel of John and, and later in Scripture, is that God, by His Spirit, prunes the productive branches that they might produce more. 
Now, again, this is a basic agricultural tip, right? If you prune, if you clean it up, the energy is not going to places where it's dead. Energy is going to bearing more fruit rather than keeping dead things alive or trying to keep dead things alive. The energy is going to the right things. And part of the work of the Spirit is transforming our hearts, pruning us and pruning our hearts that we might be more like Jesus. But not only that, we see that the productive branches are cleansed by the gospel. Notice what Jesus says in verse 3. He says to them, he's speaking to his disciples, those who are the productive branches, those who are to bear fruit. He says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is Jesus' point here? Why does he say this? Remember, Jesus told that to Peter back in chapter 13. Uh, Peter wanted Jesus to wash his whole body off and... and, uh, Jesus is like, Peter, you're already clean, dude. It's all right. Uh, I've already cleaned you. And notice here the means of cleansing by the word, because of the word that I've spoken to you. In other words, Jesus, what, what's the word here? Jesus, the, the word of the gospel, uh, the word that my death and resurrection will bring about your life. This is what Jesus is teaching. He says, my teaching has made you clean. Jesus makes clear that spiritual vitality is something that they now enjoy. Brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Christians always get squeamish when they start moving around word uh, commands. Right, because we're saved by grace alone. Therefore, we don't have to do anything to earn our salvation, right? It's so funny how everyone remembers that, right? Like everybody knows that we're not to judge one another. Like everyone knows that. Even the world, oh, you're not supposed to judge one another. You're not supposed to judge people. Not supposed to be fruit inspectors. Jesus says here in this passage that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the indwelling of the spirit generates fruit in the believer. It doesn't produce it. In other words, he is not teaching a works righteousness, but a righteousness that works. Right. James will say it like this. Show me your faith by your works. You see, works flow out of. Fruit flows out of a healthy tree, right? So we don't expect if we were to go out into this yard and find a bunch of twigs to see a bunch of life, to see a bunch of little buds on there. No, those buds, if they are on there, are going to fall off. They're going to die. They're going to wither away. Jesus is making clear that this is only possible. Friend, this morning, if you try to generate any form of spiritual truth or fruit apart from the indwelling power of the spirit, it will not last. Only the fruit of the Spirit lasts. We see also in this passage that productive branches are those who remain in fellowship with Jesus. Look at with me at verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. Now on the surface here, uh, this is a command, is it not? He is commanding them to stick close, to abide. What does it mean? It means to be in union with Jesus, to be indwelt by his spirit so that his life is flowing through your veins. You have new life in him, empowered to do the things he commanded you. Just like a branch gets its sap and its energy from the from the main trunk. So you and I get our energy, our spiritual life from being connected to Jesus. If we disconnect ourselves from Jesus, if we cut ourselves off from Jesus, then we are spiritually dead. 
There is a command here, a responsibility here on the part of the believer to stick close to Jesus. If you get off the road with Jesus, you will get off from the power that Jesus provides. Again, Jesus doesn't wade into the arguments of losing one's salvation or whether one could fall away. That's not Jesus' point. Other scriptures, John himself will deal with that in other places. What Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples is that you must remain, you must stay connected to me if you have any hope of spiritual vitality. Disconnect yourself from the vine, Jesus says, and the vine dies. Well, Jesus says that those who abide in him bear fruit. Notice what he says here begin in the second half of verse 4. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, he says, you cannot bear fruit apart from me. Now, what is this spiritual fruit? What is this fruit, rather, that Jesus is referring to? Well, he goes on in, in the latter parts of this, these verses to really enumerate a number of them, doesn't he? He says that there will be a changed affection, a changed heart. Uh, there will be a spirit-empowered obedience to the word of God. Look what he says there in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you see the correlation? Jesus doesn't tell them, ask whatever and it will be done for you. He, he makes a conditional statement, doesn't he? What's the conditions? What's the conditions of prayerfulness in the Christian life? Look with me again at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, one of the spiritual fruits brought by the Holy Spirit is prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Prayer is a mark of, of the Spirit's work. It is a mark that you are connected to Jesus. It's a sign that you are abiding in him and that his word is abiding in you. Notice what he says. He says that my words abide in you. Again, the centrality of the word of God in the Christian life. It's not that we know the word and we leave the word. No, the word never leaves us. It's the, it's the central point of all that we say and do. It's what informs our actions and our affections. It tells us what to do and how to live. And prayer is an outflow of the Spirit's work in us. We don't just pray whatever we want to pray. What do we pray? We pray that word that's abiding in us. Jesus here again encourages his disciples to pray. Earlier in chapter 14, he told them, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father is glorified in the Son. In chapter 16, he will do the same. He will say, listen, pray. And then in chapter 17, he'll say, all right, you still didn't get it. I'll just pray. Let me show you how to pray. Prayer is a central Mark, a central part of the Christian life. But not only that, look at verses 9 and 10. 
By this, well, let's begin in verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Notice here the, the connection, the correlation between fruitfulness and proof. Jesus has already said that nobody knows man's heart except for him. I don't know if you're truly a Christian or not. I mean, you can tell me you're a Christian. You can tell yourself you're a Christian. You can convince everybody in the world that you're a Christian. But there are distinct characteristics, fruit, that shows up in a Christian's life. Sure, can someone fake them? Most definitely, anything can be faked. But there are genuine fruit that shows up. And we've already seen one is prayerfulness. Well, here in verses 9 and 10, we see another. What is an indelible mark of a believer of Jesus Christ, someone who is a follower of Jesus? What does he say in verses 9 and 10? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Jesus makes makes clear that we prove our love for Jesus through our obedience to his word. Jesus is telling you, you love me, you say you love me, prove it. And so we do, don't we do this with our children every day? Don't we do that with our spouses? Don't we do that with our family? I mean, if everyone you know, is just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, like a Hallmark card do us all the time, but they, but they don't ever show us love, and they always do things to hurt us, and they never do things to please us, we would kind of call into question whether or not they genuinely loved us. And Jesus follows a similar logic here. He says, listen, you want to know what love is? Love is obedience. Friends, that is counter-cultural. I don't care what culture you're in. That is the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. No, Satan whispers. God, in his word, is holding you back. If he loved you, he would let you eat from the tree of good and evil. You see, His commands are keeping you back from experiencing all the goodness of life, the richness of life. Jesus says here, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It is illogical to say that you are following Jesus, but ignorant and ignoring the clear teachings of Jesus. Just as Jesus said in the chapter previous, in, verse, in chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John will further this argument in 1 John chapter 2. You heard it earlier. When he writes, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What a bold statement. How many, how many people do, have you known that, that, that say they know Jesus But when you look at their lives, it is clearly evident they don't know your Jesus. They know a Jesus, but it's just not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus who rules and reigns. By this, John says, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk? What does verse 10 say? He kept his father's commandments and abided in his love. Friends, obeying Jesus is the means by which we stick close to Jesus. Notice here in verse 11 that joy comes through obedience. These things I have spoken to you that that my joy, Jesus' joy, 
godly joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, Jesus is helping us as Christians understand a message that we will hear from this world that that commands are a joy killer. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a joy killer, but a joy filler. One who fills us with joy by our obedience. Jesus is not keeping you back from your best life now. Jesus is keeping you back from killing yourself spiritually. You understand, that's the point. God's commands aren't aren't, aren't meant to, to, to make our lives reclusive and sad and sorrowful. I mean, frankly, that's what Christians often look like. A bunch of crabby old people that don't seem to be very happy about anything. Because they don't, frankly, think often, have their minds renewed about who God is and who they are in Christ. Because Jesus says that if you're obeying me, you should be the most joy-filled person in all the world. And, and to be clear, joyful doesn't mean happy. Okay? All right? doesn't mean, like, you know, the sun's always shining. All right? Uh, because the, because if you go to the, look at the life of the apostle Paul, the sun was never shining that dude's life. And he was the most joy filled per, he even wrote a whole book called Philippians about living the most joyful life while he was in a hole in the ground. I mean, right. So, so, so don't, don't equate happiness with joy. Don't equate ease and peace with joy, but equate obedience with joy. There is something sweet, brothers and sisters, about obeying Jesus. Why? Why is that? Because you see, when we disobey God, we quench the spirit. We grieve the spirit, the scriptures say. And we're sorrowful. We're sorrowful over our sin. We kick ourselves in the rear and say, why did I do that? It was so foolish. Causes us to reflect about how much we love our sin more than we love our Savior, doesn't it? You see, our disobedience reveals our true loves. It truly reveals to us, doesn't it, when we sin, how much our sin nature still is in us and how the Spirit is transforming us. And one of the works of the Spirit, as we'll see in a moment, is to is to expose us to these false loves that we have in our lives. See, there's joy in obedience. There's satisfaction in obedience. There's truly the best life in obedience. Well, Jesus gets right down into it. And he makes clear, lest anyone be confused about what command he's really after here and the main obedience command that he wants them to obey. In verses 12 through 17, Jesus makes clear what he means by obeying him. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, you want to stick close to me? Here it is. Love one another. If you want to be like me, Jesus says, then love, because that's what I'm all about. Now, to be clear, Jesus defines his love all right not the love of the world like the love of the world is except unconditionally right god's love is conditional in jesus all right so so to be clear god's love for us is conditional in his son 
It's unconditional. It means we don't merit it. But it's conditional in the fact that Jesus had to die for us. And Jesus makes clear that our love is to be communal. It is to be objective. It has someone in mind. Look again at verse 12. Love one another. Jesus doesn't say love everybody, though we should love everybody to some extent. Jesus has a particular audience in mind, a particular aim, object of our love. And who is it? One another. This new community that we have been brought into is whom we're to love. You're, if you want to know who that is, just look around the room. Here's your one another. The word is, is an idea of fellowship, of relationship, right? It, it might include those outside of the church that are Christians, but the main idea is Christians in the context of a community, in the local church. We are to love one another, the members of this body, as Jesus has loved us. John 13, 14, a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. How sad it is that the testimony of so many churches across America is their divisiveness and division and their lack of love for one another. That is an indicative of a church that has ripped itself off from the true vine. Find a church that doesn't love and you find a church that the word of God is not central. That's Jesus' point. If my word is central in your life, if the preaching of God is upheld as the central task of what the church is gathering to do, not about feeling personal in vendettas or personal preferences, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and His word bringing conviction and life to His people that the word is central. Not some performance, not some musical, not anything but God's word preached. You find a church that has the word of God central and you have people serious about obeying God's word. I guarantee you will find a church that loves. That loves. Well, notice here that Jesus defines his love again for us. He's done it already. He's displayed it in chapter 13. He's commanded it to us. And now he again will tell us that the love that he means is not the love of the world, a, a reciprocal love. Our love is not reciprocal. I don't love you because you love me. That's worldly love. If you want an illustration of that, think about how you exchange gifts with others. Whether it be birthday gifts, whether it be Christmas gifts, Oh, man, she got me that gift. I got to get her something. How many times have you said that? That's worldly love. We didn't give Jesus a single thing, but yet he went to the cross. We, didn't, we, we, we sent him to the cross. We, we were like, go, yeah, you want to go to the cross? Have fun. But he went for us. Look at what he says here in this passage. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. Jesus here makes clear. That love is sacrificial. Friends you want something to, to just to savor like honey in your, in your mouth today. Hang out on 13 at the beginning there. Woody. Listen to it again. Greater love has no one than this. 
great, you have it, he says. He says, friends, you, you have that love, the greater love, this great love. You have it. It's yours. No one, no one has it. You have it. If you know Jesus, you have the greatest love. And you may be unloved by everyone in this world. You may be hated by everyone in this world. But if you are in Jesus, you have the greatest love. You are loved. Sacrificially. And we are to love one another sacrificially. Here, here's, here's my point. I've made this emphasis often. And I'll make it again here. Love. Biblical love is vulnerable love. Paul says it this way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, when you're accustomed to reciprocal love all the time, it's easy to love. Like, I love Rod because I know he's going to love me back. I know he's not going to do anything to hurt me. I trust him, right? And that trust creates love. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. But sacrificial love, genuine biblical love is vulnerable love because he may not love me back. He might do something to hurt me. He may say something, you know, to Scott and it hurts my feelings or whatever. Right? Because that's we're falling, but it's going to happen, right? But I still love him. Not because I'm going to get anything in return, but because I have experienced greater love in Jesus. Because I have the greatest love for me ever experienced that anyone can ever enjoy, the love of the cross, I can be vulnerable to love even though people don't love me. Friends, that's what motivates us to disciple one another. That's what motivates us to share the gospel. Look, you're going to share the gospel, and I bet you nine times out of the ten, they're going to say no. But that's not what motivates us. What motivates us is love that we have experienced in Christ. We see thirdly here in verses 14 and 15 that it's personal. It involves people. Jesus says, you're my friends. You're not my servants. You're not my my slaves. Elsewhere, of course, Paul uses that language. The idea here is that our relationship is what our relationship with Jesus, this personal relationship that we just talked about at the beginning, is what motivates us to be personal. We We don't have a TV screen here this morning. You're not sitting in your PJs this morning. Why? Because you're a part of a personal, communal church. That can't be done online. It can't be done through the TV. There's a lot of good TV preachers on, on TV, but I'll tell you this. Every one of those good TV preachers will tell you, go join a local church because that's where you can be a faithful follower of Jesus. And you can watch Charles Stanley all you want. I commend you to do that. But Charles Stanley will tell you that his, his TV broadcast ain't church. It ain't church. You ain't doing church watching Charles Stanley. All right? This, gathering together, loving one another, praying for one another, ministering to one another with his word, that is what God has called us to. Finally, here we see that love has a purpose. Notice what he says in verses 16 and 17. He says, I didn't, you didn't choose me. (laughs) We could camp out there later, but we won't. Uh, you, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, purpose statement, that you should go and bear fruit, another purpose, that your fruit, or perhaps result, that your fruit should abide. Friends, you were you were saved for a purpose. You were set on a mission. God enlisted you into his army, not to just keep your fruit for yourself, but to go bear fruit. Do you see it? God loved you so that you could love others. So that other people 
And I said it last week. There are people in this congregation you would have never brushed shoulders with in this life had it not been for the saving power of Jesus Christ. Do you think you came here by accident? Do you think you're a member of this church by accident? Do you think you found me by accident? Do you think you found Pastor Rod or, or Brother Scott here by accident? Do you think all of this is just mere fate? You're a fool to think that. We serve a sovereign God. One who is ordering the affairs of men for his glory and his glory alone that you might experience the love of God in Christ. Well, very quickly, we see some unproductive branches, and I just want to give us a warning here. We're told here that, that, Jesus, that there are some branches that, that think they're connected to the vine, but they're really not connected to the vine. You ever had those dangling branches? They kind of look like they're part of the tree, but they're not really a part of the tree. They're just kind of up there, hanging up there, and they're dead as dead can be. They think they're alive. They look like they're a part of the tree, but they're not a part of the tree. They have to be taken down, chopped up, burned. And Jesus here warns his disciples that there will be those who claim to be a part of the vine who really aren't a part of the vine. Now, some have taken this to mean that, that perhaps these are former disciples who lost their salvation. I don't believe so. I believe that runs counter to all of John's gospel, in particular John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, where Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I shall lose none. Right? Or as he said to Judas, um, I chose you, but one of you is of the devil. Or John chapter 2, John will teach the church in Ephesus that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Here's the warning. No fruit, no disciple. Friends, this is why as a congregation we believe in regenerate church membership. We do not bring into membership those who do not evidence salvation in their life. We do not take people at their word. We, pay, we take them at their fruit. Because that's how Jesus taught his disciples, and taught us to be able to identify one another. How, how do I know? How do you know that I'm a Christian apart from my fruit? What, what, what means you hold one another accountable to? Then the fruit that we see here, and particularly the fruit of obeying Jesus' command to love one another. Well, very quickly, I want to look at this, this second half of the chapter, and we only have a few minutes left, and I, I want to do it justice. I don't want to just rush through it, but I, but I do want to make some particular points that I think are poignant for, for this life right now. In verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus commands his disciples to abide in him by enduring persecution. He, he is preparing his disciples for the days ahead. It is not going to be a sweet road. It's not going to be all, you know, flowers and roses and sunshine for his disciples. It's going to be a horrible, awful, terrible day. And it's going to be the day of Jesus' ascension as persecution comes. In verses 18 through 20, Jesus will, says that the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. This is a truth you need to hear. This is a little dose of reality check this morning. I need it, you need it, we all need it together. The world hates Christians because it has always hated Jesus. Notice what he says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, he, he says if here. He, do, he doesn't say that well, they may not hate you. 
The idea is it. The idea is this is going to happen. It's a sense of a conditional statement that that will result in the act. Now, who does he mean by the world? Well, in the immediate context here, he means the the religious leaders, the the unbelieving Jews. In a biblical sense, the world is all that system, the world system that is against Jesus Christ. A Genesis three rebellion. Notice what he says. If the world hates you, it's because it hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See the result? The world hates us because of this truth. We were once a part of the world, and now we're not of the world. In a Genesis 3 context, it means this. All of humanity is in rebellion against their creator. And and the creator, by his love, sent his son to rescue rebels and to invite them into a new kingdom. And that this this creator God who sent his son reigns and, and he promises judgment against those rebellious people. And so the world sees you and I as traitors who have flipped sides. We once fought on their side. We once lived in active rebellion against them, against God. But now we love God and the world hates us for it. We've been now transformed by the creator and transferred into his kingdom. And we have marks on our backs And the world hates us, Jesus says. For in this world doesn't love Jesus. This country isn't going to grow warmer and warmer to Jesus. No country in this world is going to warm up to Jesus. You see, can I be honest? And and I hope you're honest. if, if, If you just have an honest understanding of history. This world only warms up to Jesus in so much as it can use Jesus for its own ends. Okay? Of course we want Christians around. To an extent. Jesus reminds us in the Gospels that we will face persecution from this world. So as to be prepared for when it comes. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Why? Because you're running up against rebellion and rebels can't stand people who want to obey. Who want to fall in line, who want to obey the creator. No, they want to overthrow the creator and they want to overthrow anyone. They want to destroy anyone and they want to destroy you. Perhaps you've experienced such persecution from friends and family. Snide remarks, under the breath comments, passive aggressive behavior, all because you want to be faithful to following Jesus. Notice here in verses 21 through 25 that the world hates Christians because it hates the father. Jesus says to them, listen, here's the deal. They ultimately They hate me and they hate my father. 
So it's not that they just want to throw Jesus out. They want to throw God out altogether. They can't stand either one of them. And Jesus makes clear in this passage that they are guilty of sin. Because Jesus spoke the truth to them and they couldn't handle the truth. Therefore, they have no excuse. You want to think more about this. Romans 1 and 2 is a great place to camp. About how all of humanity is guilty and without excuse. There's no, there's no dude on an island somewhere that's going to turn up into heaven and say, hey, I didn't know. No, what can be plainly known about God has been revealed to us through the things God's created. God has created us to know that there's a creator and we suppress the knowledge of the truth and give ourselves to the lust of the flesh and the desires of the body and the desire. That's the world, John 1, 1 John chapter 2, right? We see also here that the world will hate us because of the transforming work of the Spirit. This is similar to the point, and we'll develop this point more in chapter 16, but the work of the Spirit generates new life for which the world cannot handle. Ultimately, Jesus in this section is preparing his disciples for what is coming. He is telling them, listen, I am, I am leaving you prepared for the future, but I'm not leaving you alone. The Spirit will fill you and will empower you to endure in the midst of persecution. And I just want to camp for the last few minutes that we have here at the end, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. Notice what he says. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. To be forewarned is to be forearmed is a theme we see throughout the scriptures. And Jesus here is forewarning his disciples that persecution is coming. In other words, this morning's brothers and sisters, don't be surprised. Nothing breaks my heart more than to hear Christians say, I can't believe so-and-so would do that. That is the... We need a good dose of the depravity of humanity, an understanding of that great... Enduring biblical truth that all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. I am not surprised by the sin that is so prevalent in this society. I am not surprised by it by the least. Neither should you. Because it is meant to keep us from falling away. Can I say this also? If you are not informed in a biblical way about the fallenness of the culture around you, you will fall. Here's what I mean. If you are so in touch with this world that you can't see that this world is living in willful rebellion to God. If you can't see when you watch a simple commercial or a TV show or a movie or, or, or listen to music or or just talk to your neighbors in the way they see this world and not see their worldview in rebellion. I'm concerned for you. If you can't hear the way teachers teach children in the public schools or in the private schools or in the Christian schools and not see that sometimes that stuff is worldly. Just yesterday I was helping uh, Hope uh, work through a paper for history. And it was so filled, not her paper, but the assignment, so filled with critical race theory and intersectionality and wanting to look at history and see how race 
and how women and how these identities were inflicted and confused, it, it was maddening. It was so worldly and sad to see our society so caught up in these social programs to think that they're going to bring about change and transformation. Jesus has prepared us to endure the world's hatred. I want you to see here what he says. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You know, I think some of our biggest threat is from within. In a changing morality. Friends, there's coming a day, and it's, <laughs> that day's here, where people in the name of God and the name of Jesus will tell you that you're on the wrong side of history because you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. There are Christians, Christians today that will tell you that women have the right to choose to murder their own children if they so choose. There are people in this world in the name of Jesus who will tell you that, that it's okay at the age of, of, uh, of 90 if you want to end your life that you go right ahead. You have a right to do it. There are people in this world that will tell you in the name of Jesus. That if you don't want a, a poor child with Down syndrome. That it's okay for you to do away with their life. There are people today that will tell you a whole bunch of things in the name of Jesus. And we will face persecution for it. We will be seen as bigots for it. We'll be seen as those, and to use that worldly term, on the wrong side of history. Friends, you're, you, we've been on the wrong side of history since the cross. But we must endure. We must be warned that we are prepared. We must abide by enduring. We must abide by obeying. Let us be people of the word. Let us be people of love and obedience in the midst of persecution. Let us not give in to hate, but continue to sacrificially love as Christ Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we might not only know your love, but love one another the way Jesus has loved us. Uh, may we understand the hatred that comes and may we be so prepared to endure it for your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.